Church family, I invite you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17, is our text for today. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. And if you can and are able, I would invite you to stand as we read from God's Word. I'll read and you can follow along in your copy. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of God for his church today. You may be seated. The title of our message today is God's design of human life. God's design of human life. Today we're going to pick back up in our study of the book of Genesis. And we spent several weeks in chapter 1 a few weeks ago, and we're going to spend a few weeks in chapter 2, and we'll probably spend a few weeks in chapter 3. These opening chapters of the Bible, these first three chapters, demand our very careful attention. I think it can rightly be said that these chapters, these first three, three chapters, serve as the foundation for the rest of the Bible. Not only that, they serve as the foundation of our understanding of what life should be. Life should be. It also serves as the foundation for life as we know it to be, which isn't life as it should be. And it serves as the foundation ultimately for salvation and eternal life. These three chapters are incredibly foundational. In chapter 1, God's Word explained creation with a zoomed out focus. We're thinking about the kind of relationship between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 was a zoomed out focus on the creation of the whole world. The entire cosmos was the focus. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it just talks about the heavens and the earth from a very zoomed out uh, perspective. Now, when we get into chapter 2, verse 4 and following, God's Word describes creation again, but now it's a zoomed in focus, and it's zooming in on humanity. All right, so chapter 1, a zoomed-out focus on creation and how God created the world. Now in chapter 2, a zoomed-in focus on the creation of humanity. As we saw in our study of chapter 1, humanity 
was and is the pinnacle of God's creation. The creation account in chapter 1, it emphasized the creation of humanity. And we talked about certain things that showed that humanity um, has a very special, unique place in God's creation. Man and woman were created in the image of God. Man and woman were created to rule over the rest of creation. And man and woman were created to multiply image bearers of God. That's unique to humanity. We get to multiply image bearers of God. Now in chapter 2, we get more detail concerning God's creation of man and woman. Today, we just want to look at verses 4 through 17. And as we do, I believe that we're going to see this, that God's design of humanity provides us with life rather than death. God's design of humanity provides us with life rather than death. If I could kind of think of a word to summarize uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 17, It would be this word life. We see life pouring forth and and God's design of humanity provides us with that life rather than providing us with death. But one of the things that stands out to me as I read and study God's creation of the world um, is is just this this, uh, continual um, uh, putting God and life in the same category. We think about God from, from the perspective of Scripture, we have to think about life. God is a God of life. God is on the side of life. Or perhaps we could say it this way, life is on God's side. If you want life, you've got to be where God is. Where God is, there is life. Where God, is, where God is at work, we see a promotion of life, not of death. God's creation was very good in the beginning, we read, and it was full of life. Life is good, and I think we would all agree today that life is better than death. I think any of us would say that death as a category is better than life as a category. And God authors life, God creates life, and he created us as humans to have life. And yet, and yet, this is what I was talking about a moment ago when I said this, these chapters serve as a foundation for uh, life as it should be and also serve as a foundation for life as we know it to be. God has created humans to have life, and yet when we look around us, we see that we live in a world that is full of death. Yes, there is life, but there's also a lot of death in the world in which we live. And when we get to chapter 3, we'll see that death is not a result of God's doing. Death is a result of humans' doing, (laughs) to put it that way. Death is a result of sin, and humans are the ones that are responsible for that sin. But before we get to the fall of man, I think we want to spend some time focusing on the flip side of life in a broken world. You see, the world that God made in the beginning was full of life, and God was responsible for that life. God's a good God who works in ways that give us life rather than death. So why, why are you, you seem like you're repeating yourself a lot here. Yes, because I want us to trust the Lord. Again, we're always being tempted to not trust in the Lord and to doubt God's goodness. And so often we think that life is found, true life is found away from God's ways. But in reality, we want to experience true life we have to live in god's ways we have to trust the lord because he is a god of life death only comes when humans step outside of god's original design for creation for humanity i think this truth about god should lead us to trust him and him alone if you think about it all of our sin struggles All of our spiritual problems, which then often lead to emotional problems and even physical problems in our lives, come down to whether or not we trust God. Again, we'll talk more about this in chapter 3 when we see the serpent tempting Adam and Eve. We'll see that he tempted them to doubt whether or not God could be trusted. 
And as bad as their choice to not trust God is in chapter 3, it becomes all the more evil when we have spent adequate time in chapter 2 seeing just how good God is and how worthy of our trust He is. God's design of humanity provides us with life rather than death, which gives us, church, ample reason to trust Him in every season of life that you're walking through. We have ample reason to trust in the Lord. And when we fail to trust him, we have to realize the problem is not with him. The problem is with us. I want to share with you three truths this morning concerning God's provision of life in his design of humanity. Three truths concerning God's provision of life in his design of humanity. The first is this. God designed humanity to live in life-giving relationship with him. God designed humanity to live in life-giving relationship with him. And before we dive into this point, I do want you to notice the opening words of verse 4. It says, these are the generations of, or your translation may say, this is the account of, or these are the records of. However, your verse 4 starts there. And this is a little Bible study tip uh, for you as you're reading and studying the book of Genesis. Um, that, that phrase is used in the book of Genesis as, as a section marker. It marks off different sections in the book of Genesis. Ten or, or eleven times, I say or eleven because two of the times are, are repetitive. Um, and, and so you could say ten different sections. Um, at some point you may want to go through and even highlight these, uh, these, this phrase throughout the book of Genesis so that when you are reading through it and studying through Genesis you'll know it. notice. Just let me read through them real quick. Chapter 5 verse 1 says this is the book of the generations of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9 says, these are the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. 11, verse 10 says, these are the generations of Shem. 11, 27 says, these are the generations of Terah. 25, 11 says, these are the generations of Ishmael. 25, 19 says, these are the generations of Isaac. Then we get to the, the two that are the same. 36, 1 and 36, 9 both say, these are the generations of Esau. And then the last one, 37.1, these are the generations of Jacob. And so you can kind of think about those in a way as chapter markers in the book of Genesis. They help us kind of keep track of where we're at in the storyline. Here in chapter 2, verse 4, we see the first of these headings. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Just in case... (laughs) Just in case we finish chapter 1 and there's any doubt that God alone is the creator of heaven and earth, we are reminded of that again in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And then we get into verses 5 through 7. Now, some people have tried to use verses 5 through 7 as evidence that chapter 1 and chapter chapter 2 contradict one another, that they're at odds with one another. They try to use verses 5 through 7 to say, oh, you can't, can't trust this, you can't trust God's word, so we've got two different accounts of creation here. Why do they say that? Well, in chapter 1, God created the plants on day 3 and humans on day 6, so obviously the plants came before humans. But then, look at chapter 2, verse 5. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so some people will say, well, well that's the opposite of chapter 1, right? Uh, they, they, chapter 1, the plants come first. Chapter 2, man comes first, and then... And then the plants. 
However, I don't think there's any contradiction at all here. If you understand chapter 2 as referring to the land where God was going, the specific land where God was going to plant the man there in the garden. God had not yet planted this garden yet. God had not yet caused the garden plants to grow up from the ground to provide food for this man in the place where he was going to put him. And so there's more that could be said there. I don't think there's any contradiction at all between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. What the text mainly focuses our attention on is the creation of man. I think that's God's point here. What he wants our attention to be placed on is his creation of man. Verse 7 says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Notice the hands-on nature which God formed this first man. He formed him from the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, back in chapter 1, we saw that man was created in the image of God, and nothing else in all of creation was made in the image of God. And again, setting humanity apart from the rest of creation, only of man does it say that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, certainly, humans are not the only creatures that have breath in us. Like, we're not the only creatures who have lungs that inhale and exhale uh, oxygen and whatever other, um, whatever other gases we're breathing in. And yet, we are distinct in the fact that it was the very breath of God which caused the lifeless body of dust which God had formed into man to become a living being, to be infused with life. I think God intends for us to understand something as he tells us this exact way that he made the first man. Church, God designed us to live, to have a life. And the life he designed us to have is a life lived in relationship with him. The life he designed us to live is a life where we live in relationship with him. The one who put his own breath in us. But the reality of our present condition reveals that we've tried to live apart from God. We have rejected God's life-giving breath and instead tried to live without that unique relationship with Him. Now I want you to see that whenever we reject living in relationship with God, we are rejecting the very means of our existence and the very source of what it means to have real and true life. People all around us are searching. Sometimes we are searching for life and true life and to live life to the fullest. And I want you to know that God's original design says, yes, I want you to have real life. And you have real life when you live it in relationship with your Creator. Not apart from Him. Like a river cutting itself off from the spring which feeds it, so are we when we try to live life apart from God. We end up dried up and full of death and unable to fulfill the purpose for which God has created us. But church, God has an answer. Praise the Lord, God has an answer for our rejection of His life-giving relationship. He has an answer to that. And I want you to know what that answer is. It's a born-again, life-giving relationship with Him. God's answer to our sin and our rejection of His creating us to live in relationship with Him is a born-again, life-giving relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, His Son. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied about this new life-giving relationship where dead people would live again. 
I love this story. Uh, Ezekiel saw a valley uh, was full of dried up bones. They were dead. They were dried up. And those dried up bones were the bones of the Israelites. And what we need to know about the Israelites is that they had tried to live life apart from relationship with their creator God. That, that was their problem. They had, they had tried to live life apart from a relationship with God, which resulted in not life, but the absence of life. And Ezekiel prophesied to them, and the bones came together, and the ligaments and tendons formed, and the skin formed around them, and they were like Adam's body prior to the breath of God. They were bodies, put that together, but they were still lifeless. Ezekiel looked and was like, well, well, this is great, but now I don't have a bunch of bones, but I do still have a bunch of lifeless bodies here. What's it going to take? What's going to happen? But then God said, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So, Ezekiel says, I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Church, church, the breath of God has the power to give new life to people who once rejected him. The breath of God has the power to give new life to people who once rejected Him. And so we say, where then is our Ezekiel? Where is our prophet through whom this life-giving breath can come to resurrect our dead bodies of sin? Where is this breath which can fill us with new life? Because truly, we are dead in our trespasses apart from God's divine intervention. I want you to know that this prophet has come. No, it's not Ezekiel. It's more than a prophet. His name is Jesus and He is the Son of God. And this breath which can awaken our dead hearts to new life has come. But this breath is more than a combination of oxygen and other gases. This breath is the very Spirit of God. It's God the Son and God the Spirit who breathe new life into us and are able to resurrect our dead bodies, giving us new life. I cannot help but think ahead several thousand years from Genesis chapter 2 to a conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And this Pharisee named Nicodemus wanted to live in God's kingdom. He wanted to experience true life with God. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, is given new life, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot have that life-giving relationship with God which he was originally designed to have. And Nicodemus replied, Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. I think about Ezekiel's prophecy, Oh, come, four winds from the corners of the earth. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. In other words, this is not something that we can just do on our own. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that apart from the divine work of God, mankind remains separated from God, being rejected by the God whose life-giving breath we have chosen to reject. But God acts on our behalf through His Spirit to breathe new life into dead hearts and once again provide us with that life-giving relationship with the God who made us. Once again, 
placing us into his eternal kingdom, which he had to remove us from because of our sin. But Jesus didn't just come to tell us about the life-giving work of the Spirit. Jesus came to make that happen. He came to die for our sin, for our rejection of God. So that all who believe in Him, so that all who look to the Son of God would be born again and experience the work of the Spirit in giving us new life. New life that we desperately need. Church, God designed humanity to live in life-giving relationship with Him. And praise God, He has made a way for sinners like you and me to once again live in that life-giving relationship with Him. All glory, all glory be to our God. Second truth is this. God designed humanity to live in life-sustaining dependence upon Him. God designed humanity to live in life-sustaining dependence upon Him. We live in life-giving relationship with Him. That's how He designed us. And He also designed us to live in uh, life-sustaining dependence upon Him. Not only did God design us to live with Him as the source or the beginning of our lives, He designed us to live with Him as the sustenance for our lives. We didn't just need Him in the beginning. We need Him every moment of every day. God didn't just give humanity life initially and then just step back and say, good luck, we'll leave you to fend for yourselves. No. He gave us life and then He gave us everything we needed to continue living the life that He had given us. Notice that after God breathed life into man's nostrils, he placed him in a garden where every single need he had, need of man that man had, in order to continue living, was bountifully met. God doesn't just put him in a wilderness. God puts him in the Garden of Eden. Verse 8, look there. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. He didn't even make Adam find it. He didn't even give him math and say, "Hope hope you can find this place. He just put him there. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up. Who's doing the work? God. The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice what else is there. An abundance of water. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. And we get more information about these rivers. Just want you to notice a lot of detail given here, but I don't want to miss the big picture. God planted a garden in Eden. God put the man whom he had formed in the garden. God made to spring up from the ground in this garden every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. There was even a tree from which Adam could eat, which is called the tree of life. There was an abundance of water in the garden. We know that's what we need as humans. This was a bountiful land. It was beautiful land. It didn't just meet the needs, but it, but, but it also was enjoyable to live in. I mean, the trees were, were pleasing to the side as well. God provided Adam with absolutely everything he needed to enjoy and to enjoy forever. Remember the tree of life? His life-giving relationship with God. So God creates Adam to enjoy a life-giving relationship with him and he gives him everything he needs to enjoy that life-giving relationship forever and ever and ever. That's the kind of God that we serve. Not only could Adam not take credit for his coming to life, he could not take credit for his continuance of life. God gave him life and God continued to sustain his life. I think there's some parallels there with our salvation as well. 
God is responsible for our salvation. He saves us. We don't save ourselves. And he keeps us saved. We don't keep ourselves saved. If it weren't for God's grace every day in our lives, surely, surely we would fall away from him. I just want you to see how good God is. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Sometimes we do because sometimes it feels like maybe God isn't on our side. <laughs> that following God is not working out how we thought it would. And we begin to doubt God's goodness. But do you see what a provider God is? And do you see what an incredible life humanity had and what an incredible world humanity got to live in before sin? A world apart from sin is a world where we live forever and never lack anything that we need. Isn't that awesome? That sounds amazing. A world where, where there's no sin, where we live forever and we never lack anything that we need. That sounds amazing, but if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll look back at the Garden of Eden with sad longing and bitter envy. We'll look back at the Garden of Eden with sad longing and bitter envy. We'll look back and go, oh, oh, I just wish I could be back there. Oh, man, Adam and Eve just had it so good. I wish I could be them for a day. Now, why would we be tempted this way? It's because we know that life today is a far cry from life in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. Life as we know it today is a far cry from Genesis chapter 2. We don't have a tree of life to eat from in our garden We have trees that are turned into coffins for our dead bodies. We live in a world full of brokenness and despair, hunger and thirst, death and decay. And so it's right for us to look back at the Garden of Eden and say something has gone wrong. It's good for us to look back at the Garden of Eden and say, I sure would love to live in a place where God and man dwell together with man enjoying a life-giving relationship with God and life-sustaining dependence upon Him. But we err. We're wrong if we only look back with sad longing and with bitter envy, for there's no hope sitting around dreaming about the good old days. That doesn't provide us with anything that will get us out of the predicament that we find ourselves in, in a world full of death and decay. Instead, if we read our whole Bibles, our looking back to the Garden of Eden should quickly be transformed into our looking ahead with eager anticipation, not to a garden called Eden, but to a city called the New Jerusalem. For though our world has been wrecked, by sin, though life is often filled with hunger and want, church, there is, as the psalmist says, there is a river whose city streams, excuse me, make glad the city of God. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. There is coming a new heavens and a new earth, a new place for God's people to dwell forever in life-sustaining dependence upon Him. I want you to consider these words for a moment from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And And then just for a moment, I want you to consider... The next chapter, the Apostles John, uh, John's vision continues this way in Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. 
the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Friends, don't look back at the garden and stay there in wishful longing. Look back at the garden long enough to realize that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And then look ahead. Look ahead. Look ahead to what is coming for the people of God. Life and life forevermore. You say, how do I look ahead to the city of God? Not merely with an eager longing, but with a confident expectation that I'll be there one day. How do I look ahead with that confident expectation expectation that I'll get to enjoy that one day? Friend, you must look ahead by turning your eyes to Jesus, who is the river of life. And when you do, when you turn to Jesus in faith, not only will He give you a place in His coming city, He will sustain you every moment of every day until you drink from the river flowing from His throne and eat from that tree of life which provides eternal healing. Sustain you every day until you reach that place that He has for you. What about those of us who have turned to Jesus in faith? You say, well, I have, I have turned my eyes to Christ. I have trusted in Jesus for salvation. Well, Christian, let me ask you this. Are you living in dependence upon Jesus each day? Sometimes the mess that we get ourselves in, even as Christians, is because we're not living in dependence upon Jesus each day. We think He's there just to give us salvation initially, just to give us that life-giving relationship initially, but then we fail to live in dependence upon Him each day. Just because we turn to Jesus doesn't mean life is automatically easy. Our citizenship, our citizenship may have changed from this world to the city of God, but we still dwell in this sin-cursed world. And yet God has not left us as Christians to fend for ourselves. He's provided us, Christian, with everything that we need to live out the life that He has called us to live until that day when we enter into the new Jerusalem. The Apostle Peter said it this way, This is great encouragement for me as a Christian when I get discouraged along life's weary way. I'm trying to follow the Lord, but I find find it difficult. I find myself stumbling. The Apostle Peter said, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I just think back to the Garden of Eden. God had given to Adam all things that he needed to live in life-giving relationship with him. But Adam just depends upon the Lord each and every day. And Christian, God has done the same for us. His divine power is granted to us all things, Peter says, that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Then Peter goes on to call us, those who have been saved, to live lives of godliness, to continue living in relationship with God, And then he says this, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, like Adam in the garden, God has given us everything we need. We just need to depend upon Him. And not upon ourselves. And keep our eyes fixed on Him. 
and not get distracted by the things of this world. Moment by moment, day by day, living in dependence upon the Lord. God designed humanity to live in life-giving relationship with Him. God designed humanity to live in life-sustaining dependence upon Him. And third, third truth I want to share with you is this. God designed humanity to live in life-prolonging obedience to Him. Very important. God designed humanity to live in life-prolonging obedience to Him. All we see here is just centered around this theme of life because everything that God does for His, for his creation is, is to provide them with life. To provide us with a life-giving relationship with Him. Provides us with every need, everything we need to live in, in dependence upon Him. Life-sustaining dependence. But we also have some commands. We also have some instructions from the Lord. God has given us a way to live, and I want you to know this way provides us with life. God formed Adam from the dust. God breathed his own breath of life into Adam. God gave Adam everything he needed to live, and God intended for Adam to live forever. But that forever life was not a life where Adam could live however he wanted. It was not a life where Adam was the ruler of himself. The text in verse 15 once again tells us that God put Adam in the garden, but now the focus is not on God's provision of resources, but on God's provision of instructions. Verse 15 uh, through 17 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, which means he, had, he could eat of the tree of life, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now notice first, now I'm going to say this kind of quickly, We could spend more time on it, but notice that the man was put in the garden to work and to keep the garden, to work it and to keep it. Again, I say a lot about this, but we just point this one quick thing out. Listen, work is good and laziness is bad. The Garden of Eden was not a place where people were lazy. Work existed before the fall of man. Work is not a result of sin. Work became hard and work became toilsome after sin entered the world. But God created humanity to work, to be busy, to not just sit around and do nothing. We see here the foundation for living with a proper work ethic and for laziness being a sin. And it is a sin. And you can read more about laziness being a sin and God calling us to live with a proper work ethic in other places in the Bible, such as the book of Proverbs or the book of First Thessalonians, the book of Second Thessalonians, the book of Ephesians, lots of places. That's all I'm going to say about that for right now because I want us to move in our, in our last few minutes to verses 16 and 17. God gave the man a command. And this command provided the man with an opportunity. I want you to see this. This is an opportunity that he's providing the man with. As he gives this command, he's providing man with an opportunity to live in a life-prolonging obedience to God. God says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So first, God here reminds man of the abundance of grace that has been shown to him. You may may eat of every tree in the garden. The man has done nothing to create or produce or deserve the garden, but God has given him every tree of the garden to eat except for one. Only one he cannot eat from. And we've already seen that all these trees are beautiful to look at, are delicious to eat. God's abundance of grace comes first. And then the command 
to live in obedience to him. Not the other way around. It's not obedience that then earns God's love. It's God's love and grace that we then respond to with obedience. So we first see the abundance of grace. And second, motivated by God's abundant grace, the man is to obey God's one command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one tree. That's the command. This command implies that man was allowed to eat from the tree of life, which means God wanted man to live forever. And the life man was supposed to live was a life free from the shame and guilt which comes from knowing the horror of practicing evil as opposed to practicing good. This is going to be abundant life. Where man didn't have to worry about sin, where man didn't have to worry about the shame and the guilt that would come with sin, because he would not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He could live in perfect purity and holiness before the Lord. And then third, in this verse, I want you to notice that God is upfront with man about the consequences of disobedience. He reminds him of the abundance of grace he's shown him, gives him the command to obey, and then tells him what's going to happen if he doesn't. I mean, God is clear. God's not keeping anything hidden from Adam. What's the consequence of disobedience? It's death. It's the removal of life. The removal of abundant life. The removal of life as God has intended. The consequence is death. Friends, God puts before Adam a choice. And this choice was an opportunity to worship God by prioritizing God's word over any other word. Remember that when we get into chapter 3 and all of a sudden there's another word that's spoken, not by God, but by a serpent. An opportunity to worship God by prioritizing God's word over any other word. It's an opportunity to respond to God's goodness and grace and provision with loving obedience toward the God who has provided for Adam. And if Adam chose obedience, life would be prolonged. How long? Forever. It's the tree of life. There's no death. Unless Adam eats from the tree. Unless Adam disobeys. But Genesis 3 tells us that Adam chose disobedience. And that disobedience separated him from the life-giving relationship he had with God. And friends, that separation has been passed down to us. Scripture says, for in Adam all die. Church, the choice between obedience and disobedience has always been a choice of life and death. It's no small matter. God set before Adam the choice between life and death. God set before the Israelites the choice of life and death. When Moses finished uh, giving the law of God to the Israelites before they entered the promised land, he said this, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But... If your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, a blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him, for He is your life. And the length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. Friends, like Adam, the Israelites had an opportunity to trust God's Word and choose obedience, but 
You know what happened? The Israelites had inherited that sin nature from Adam and they rejected God through disobedience just like Adam and they reaped the consequences just like Adam. Know this, that sin leads to destruction. Whatever sin you're struggling with right now, whatever temptations are are in your mind and around you right now, sin leads to destruction. It leads to the absence of life. It leads to death. We see it in the Bible. We see it as evidence in our own lives. And every day we're faced with opportunities to choose obedience or disobedience, to choose life or to choose death. But we've inherited the sin nature of Adam too. We think that life apart from God is a life of freedom. We do. I want to live my own way. We think real life is when I get to live life on my own terms, when I get to make the own rules, when I get to call the shots for my life. But if this were the case, if that's where true freedom was found, then this world would be full of satisfied and fulfilled and joyful people running around doing everything that is right in their own eyes. That's not what we see. What we see is a world full of people trying to live their own way and then reaping the consequences trying to live life apart from a life-giving obedience to God and then wondering why their lives are filled with hurt and destruction and death. And we are those people. We've chosen death over life. And Adam all died. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've chosen death over life, but church, God is still a God. He's still a God who provides humanity with life over death. He provides humanity with life rather than death. Though we forfeited the first life God gave, God sets before us another choice. He sets before us a choice to believe in Jesus and receive that new born again life. Jesus came and lived a perfect life and He endured the consequence of death for the sin that we have committed. He died in our place and rose from the dead to provide everlasting life to all who choose to believe in Him. And so today, today, God is placing before us a choice of life and death. The right choice is not to try to obey God perfectly and have life that way. We've already failed at that. The right choice is to trust in Jesus who was perfect for us and to receive God's gift of everlasting life by choosing to trust in Jesus. And that then will lead to a life of obedience. Responding to the grace of God in our lives. So I just want to close with a couple of questions. If you've never believed in Jesus for salvation, Very simple question. Will you do so today? I believe, I believe today that God, if you haven't trusted in Christ, God is setting before you right now in this moment a choice of life and death. Jesus said the will of His Father is that we would believe in the Son. And so will you choose to trust in Jesus? God is ready to breathe new life into your heart today. And the second question, if you have believed in Jesus, then brother, sister in Christ, are you responding to God's gift of life-giving grace through a life of wholehearted obedience to the God who created you, to the God who sustained you, to the God who saved you and is continuing to save you and will finish that salvation in you one day when you enter into that new Jerusalem 
Are you living for Him? He's worthy of it. He's worthy of our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You so much for Your Word that tells us what is true. What is true about You, what is true about us, what is true about the world in which we live. And God, if we are honest, if we take Your Word and filter what we see in this world through Your Word, we see exactly what Your Word says. That You give life. That we, when we step outside of Your design for us, experience death and all the consequences of life apart from You. But God, we also see For those of us who have trusted in Christ and have experienced the new life that You breathed into us when we choose to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So God, I just pray that whatever You're doing in all of our hearts right now in this place, God, that we would respond in obedience. That we would respond in obedience. We need to cry out to you for salvation. I pray that right now people would cry out to you for salvation. If we need to cry out to you for help in depending upon you each day, help us to cry out for you for help, to you for help. If we need to cry out with thanksgiving, saying, God, thank you so much for the new life that you have given me. Help me to appreciate it more and more every day. God help us to cry out with hearts of thankfulness. God help us just to respond to you in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray.